If you can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20. And as you open there, I want to mention something. Over the last few weeks, I've been spending an extended time meditating on Psalm 119. And I did say turn to Exodus 20, so don't, don't be confused here. Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's made up of 176 verses broken down into 22 different stanzas of eight verses each. There's 22 stanzas because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each of those stanzas starts with the same letter. So Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The first eight verses of Psalm 119 begin with Aleph. And it goes all the way through these 22 stanzas. Now Psalm 119 is really remarkable because it's just a long prayer that delights in the law of God. It begins, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimony, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my way may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And much of the psalm takes on that same language. In fact, in, throughout those 22 stanzas, generally there are eight different words that are used for the law of God, the word of God. And they use them again and again and again and again and again. But step back and think about the reality of this chapter. Psalm 119. The writer of this chapter who speaks so highly about God's law, about God's word, about God's revelation, he takes so much delight in this law, he didn't have this book that we have. He just had a little part of it. He probably only had the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yet this is how he describes those five books. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Your testimonies are my delight. Behold, I long for your precepts. I find my delight in your commandments. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. So he's talking about these first five books of the Bible when he's saying these things. Now I share all that because when we come to a text like we're going to come to today, and really every text of the Bible... We should be coming to it, viewing it and reading it with these eyes. These eyes of looking at God's word with delight. And there's a reason for that delight. And the reason is this. God's words, including God's laws, speak God's grace. This is how we know God's grace, through God's words. God's words, his laws, his commandments, they've got two directions to them. They are two-way words. Now, when we think of commandments, when we think of laws, generally we think of them as as one-directional words. And what I mean by that is that we think of what we're responsible to do. It's like it's a command, so it's going to tell me what I have to do. It's a law. It's going to tell me what I have to do or can't do. And while that's important, it's not the primary direction of God's law. Primary is God and His grace. And we're going to come back to that idea in a little bit. Now, in God's laws, we find not just God's righteousness, but we find God's generosity to his people. And the psalmist of Psalm 119 understood this. And I hope that after we look at our text, look at this book together this morning, we will understand this as well. Now, our passage this morning, it's a long one. We've moved at a snail's pace over the last few months. 
And we're about to like, go zero to 60, like that. So I don't want anybody to get whiplash. So I'm going to give a little bit of context as we pull out of the starting gate. Now, back on May 13th, so three months ago, I think, four months ago, Larry preached from Exodus 19, and we were brought to the foot of Mount Sinai. So we journeyed with the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt into the wilderness, and now they're at the foot of Sinai. And I want to revisit this passage just a little bit because it's the beginning of the scene that we're actually going to be looking at together. Three months after the people of Israel have gone out of Egypt, they come to Sinai. Now up until this point, God has made himself known to them through his power, his deliverance, his salvation that he's worked for them. He's set the captives free. He is a great redeemer. Now at Sinai, he's going to make himself known through his word, through what he says and what he requires. This is what he has Moses tell the people in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. If you're, if you're at 20 already, you can probably just flip a page and read along with me. Verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." If we zoom out from Sinai, taking the whole book of Exodus, this is like one of the most important moments in these 40 chapters. God speaks to the people. He begins by highlighting the grace that he's shown them as he's delivered them, as he's redeemed them, he's rescued them. And then he talks about what he wants to do with them. God says, since I've saved you, you are mine. And in fact, all things are mine. Because of my grace, you shall be especially mine. And then he uses that phrase, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And it probably rings familiar in many of your ears. Because while this passage is vital to the flow of Exodus, it's not meant to end there. These verses, these words, they echo out through the rest of Scripture. We've talked about at different points this idea of Exodus being, being a, providing a melody of the gospel that, that resounds throughout the rest of Scripture. And we see that pretty explicitly right here because Peter uses these same words in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. For all those who have placed their hope and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, Peter's not talking about ancient Israel, Peter's talking about you. Peter's talking about the church. You have been joined together to this people. So when we're reading Exodus together, these things, they're meant to point us forward to this greater reality for those who are in Jesus Christ. And that's what we should be seeing as we come to his word. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I want to go back to Exodus 19, verse 8. The people respond to God's word in obedience and faith. They recognize God as their deliverer, not just as a good guy who did a good thing, but they recognize him as their Lord. And look what they say if you're there in Exodus 19, verse 8. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now this phrase is going to come back up a little bit later, so remember that one. Now the next thing that happens in Exodus 19, after they've committed themselves to obedience, is the people are consecrated. Now, to be consecrated is to be made holy, to be set apart for a sacred purpose. They need to be made clean. 
Now, after cleansing themselves for three days, that's what God instructs them to do through Moses, something changes at the mountain. There's thunder and lightning and this loud trumpet blast that goes on and on, and Moses brings the people out to meet God at the base of the mountain. And as they come, in verse 18, 19, chapter 19, verse 18, we see that the mountain trembled greatly. Can you imagine this? I was trying to think about this a little bit. I'm just like, the only mountain around here is Sugarloaf Mountain. And that's, I think, 400 and something feet tall. But even that, the idea of standing at the base of that and it trembling greatly, what terror and fear that would, that would cause in you. This is not the kind of place you want to be hanging out at. And it's here that on this mountain that God speaks to his people through Moses. And he calls Moses up there and he gives him the ten words, the Decalogue, the ten commandments that we spent the better part of three months walking through together. Now last week, Larry continued this narrative describing how the people, they greatly feared God, understandably. In Exodus twenty nineteen, they cry, Do not let God speak to us lest we die. But Moses tells them, and Larry mentioned this last week, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you. This is the reason why, that you may not sin. God has come to this people. He's made Himself known to them, so that they might obey Him. Now, you might hear this and think that, man, God is a hard God. He's a difficult ruler. Like, all he wants is obedience and compliance. He is that overbearing parent, just wielding their authority, their their tyrannical authority over their children. God doesn't care about the joy of this people or the joy of others. But this couldn't be further from the truth. And you all know this. God makes himself known to his people so that they might obey him and be satisfied in Him, delight in Him, and that they might make Him known to the world, so that other people might know Him and delight in Him and find their joy in Him and obey Him. The book of Exodus, it has this tremendous missionary impulse behind it. Because God is on a mission to make Himself known to Israel and to all the world. And we see glimpses of this throughout, and we've highlighted them as we've gone. If Israel is going to make God known to the world then they must live as his people. They must be a distinct people. They must be a set-apart people. They are a consecrated people. So that's why God gives his law, so that they might know how to live. That's what we've seen in the Ten Commandments, how all-encompassing they are. They touch every aspect of our lives. And that's what we're going to continue to see over these next three chapters. And here we continue the narrative as God makes himself known through his law that he might be made known through his people. Now we're going to walk through this passage under two broad headings that have to deal with the expression of God's grace for his people. And so the first heading is this, provision and protection for God's people. Now this is, we're, we're dealing with, we're going from chapter 20, verse 21, and we're going to go, Lord willing, if I make it this far, to 24, verse 11. So we're covering a lot of ground. Uh, 99% of the time, I would make sure we read the whole text. This morning, we're not going to read the entirety of this text. And um, I, th- I think we're going to be able to understand because the reason we're not reading the whole thing is because what it's saying in whole is probably more important, I would actually say definitely more important, than what it's saying in each of its individual parts. So we want to make sure we get that the whole sweep of it. Now let's read the first couple of verses of our passage together. Now this is under God's provision and protection for his people. Verse 20 and 21 and 22 in chapter 20. 
Chapter 20, verse 21 and 22. That's a lot of consecutive numbers. This is the Word of God. and It's inerrant, infallible, sufficient. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Remember, they greatly feared him, so they stood far off. Moses comes near as their mediator. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. And then from here, God declares law after law after law. That's really just an unpacking of the Ten Commandments. The remainder of chapter 20, it deals with right worship. You see, because of the great fear that people had of God, God begins by explaining how they can come to Him, how they can meet Him. And the place where God will meet His people is the altar. And the altar is the place of sacrifice. God's law is God's grace to God's people. So they fear Him greatly. And the first words out of God's mouth is saying, Hey, this is how you can come to me. This is how you are to worship me. And really, this is just an unpacking of the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments. Right relationship with God demands right worship of God. So you shall have no other gods before me. I alone am God. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not take my name in vain. God is concerned about the worship that his people bring him. Now in this, we see God's provision and protection for his people. For example, if you were invited into the home of the queen, in preparation you would like to find out the rules and etiquette for behavior when in her presence. Like that would only make sense. The last thing you would want to do is to show her dishonor rather than honor. So you'd want to know the customs. You'd want to show them the respect that's appropriate for their position. God would not be a kind and gracious God if he did not explain these things to his people. So that's what he does here. Right relationship with God demands right worship of God. So how does God describe right right worship here in verses 23 through 26? Now it's primarily about one thing. Right worship doesn't worship the worship. There's a lot of worships in there. Right worship doesn't worship the worship. He says, make an altar of earth in verse 24. In verse 25, he says, if you use stones, don't use cut stones. God knows the propensity of his people, the tendency of his people, to worship things other than God. And if you spend all your time making this glorious altar made from cut stones that you've chiseled and fashioned and they're, and they're gorgeous, maybe you'll be distracted from actually the object of your worship and instead start worshiping the altar instead. God wants to ensure that his people, they're never drawn more to the presentation of their worship than the object of their worship. Now, I think we see some of this today. There's a lot of different places I could go, but I'm going to go to one. One of these places you see, this is in these tremendous, mind-blowing cathedrals you see constructed throughout Europe. And there's an aspect of the glory of God. You see them in the States too. There's an aspect of the glory of God being expressed through these, but it's more likely that we're drawn away from marveling at God and instead are drawn to marveling human ingenuity and ability. And you can just look across at Europe and grasp this. There's this whole industry of tourism that's built around people touring these incredible buildings. Now, while some of these people, they're religious and they love the Lord and they're giving glory to God through these things. Most of the people that tour these places, they don't really come, they don't really come to worship God. They come to gawk at the majesty of the building. 
the fact that generation after generation after generation gave themselves to building this one building that they would never see. And it's, re- it's remarkable. But they're standing in awe of the building. And this is one of the blessings for us today as we meet where we do, in the simple way that we do. No one comes to Grace Church to marvel at the building. No one comes to Grace Church to be blown away by Larry's gifts or my gifts. No one comes for this like otherworldly experience. Like you've got to be there because this is just what they're doing is just amazing. This experience is amazing. Where they're meeting is amazing. Just look around. No one's saying that. Rather, we we come and we are amazed. But we're amazed at the God that we worship. We're amazed because God is he he speaks his word to us and we speak his word to one another. We come not to marvel at a building, but to marvel at his word. We come not to gaze at our praise, but to gaze upon his grace in Jesus Christ. So God is concerned about the forms of our worship because he wants us focused on the object of our worship. So God instructs his people on how to worship in the right way. Remember what I said about the the two-directional nature of God's laws. And we see that right here. Look at verse 24. He says, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And listen to this part. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Yes, in this first section, God's instructing his people in how they should worship, how they should obey. But there's also this word of grace that he speaks, this window into God's activity. God is the one who causes his name to be remembered. And when he does this, God is the one who comes and blesses his people. This is one of the reasons why we have a call to worship every week. Because it's God's, God's the one who actually spoke first. Like there's already something going on that God is doing that we're now coming to be a part of. In worship, we can often tend to think of what we need to do, of what we are offering. Now, if this is our only perspective on worship, then we're missing the most significant aspect of right worship. Right worship flows from grace. It flows from God. It's primarily about what God has done and is doing, and secondarily about what we're doing. So you think you're doing something great to remember God? Don't think more highly than you ought. God is the one who causes his name to be remembered. God's the one who does it. You think you deserve some blessing for showing up this morning, showing up every week? God is the one who actually comes and blesses his people. He's the one who causes his name to be remembered. He's the one who pours out the blessing. So yes, we are to worship God's way, but thanks be to God because he makes a way. God begins his instruction to his people by making a way for them to come to him. And what provision that is from God. He's just spoken to them the Ten Commandments, which, as we've seen, they're these all-encompassing, touching every part of our life commandments. We've seen the mountain tremble. We've, we've heard the thunder and the, seen the flashes of lightning. The people are saying, don't talk to us. Just let Moses talk to us. We cannot come near to you. And here God is saying, hey, this is how you come near. The way that you come to me is through the altar of sacrifice. And you're going to mess up but you can still come to me. And so God's saying here, the grace that he's speaking through his law right here. This is the two-way rhythm of these chapters. It's all rooted in grace. It all begins with what God is doing and has done and continues to do. And it ends with grace and what God has promised to do. God's law is God's grace for God's people. 
Now from there, from Exodus 21 through 23, 19, God shifts his instruction from worship to community. He further explains the Ten Commandments by commanding the people how they are to live together as God's people. So God addresses the various contexts and circumstances for relationships in the Israelite community. Now if you read these laws straight through, they can seem really strange. Some much more so than others. Just look at 2319 if you don't believe me. Now they're talking about a world full of ox and donkeys. And while some of us may own livestock, I know some of us do, none of us used it as transportation this morning. But these laws, while not directly applicable to our context, they do convey principles that reflect God's grace. And the main principle that's reflected is in how Jesus sums up the law. In Mark 12, familiar passage to us, Jesus is asked, hey, which commandment is the greatest commandment? And this is his answer in verses 30 and 31 of Mark 12. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And this really summarizes all that's contained in this section. Especially this second great command Jesus mentions, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So back to Exodus 21 through 23. And we're not going to look at all of these laws, but as we read this passage, we must bear in mind that these laws are God's grace for God's people. They make provision and they give protection to the community of God's people. They are an expression of God's call to love our neighbors as ourselves. So these laws are pretty specific to this context, but the principle applies to us all. Now the section we come to first in Exodus 21, it has to do with slaves. Now one thing we have to bear in mind in our context is that we have to read Scripture on Scripture's terms. And there's two things we should keep in mind when we, when we come to this section. First, the slavery of the Old Testament was nothing like what comes to our mind when we think of slavery in our American context. The Hebrew word that's used here has, it has a range of meanings that goes from slave to servant to, to employee. Slavery in these parts, sometimes it was voluntary. So people would, would go into slavery to escape poverty or to repay a debt. And other times it was involuntary. Maybe it was due to losing a battle. You're taken captive or as punishment for a crime. But it was not the kind of oppressive, dehumanizing slavery that we think of. Second, Scripture, whether here or elsewhere, it never commends or commands slavery. I think you're clear on that, but I want to make sure it's explicit. It never talks about enslaving a person as a good thing. Rather, Scripture, both here and elsewhere, it seeks to constrain slavery. The laws that God gives his community of people, they're laws that that protect slaves. They make it better for the slave and not as good for the master. Now, God makes provision for male slaves and female slaves here in Exodus 21. He makes provision for them to be set free. And for as long as they serve their master, God gives laws that protect them from abuse. God is a gracious God who loves his people and wants to see them protected. The community of God, of God's people, should be characterized by right relationships. So when we come across this section on slavery, we shouldn't be confused by it. We should be encouraged by it and grateful for it. Additionally, many of our nations past, they've looked at texts like this as if they provide justification for slavery. It's like, hey, the Bible's talking about it, so no big deal, right? But this is simply not so. Look at 21 verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, 
shall be put to death. Right there in this one verse, we have an entire denunciation of the whole of the transatlantic slave trade. God protects his image bearers. Moreover, God is a God who desires that his people deal with one another justly. God is a God who cares about justice. Now, in many ways, this is what we see in the rest of chapter 21 and into chapter 22. God gives provision and protection to his people through justice. God cares about justice, and he cares about how justice is carried out in the context of his covenant people. And one of the main things we see here is this idea that when things go bad, when a crime is committed, or when someone is negligent, the punishment should fit the crime. Now, one of the phrases that comes up is an eye for an eye. And it's not literally an eye for an eye, but it expresses this important principle that consequential punishment should be reflective of the consequences of the wrong that's done. For just one example, look at 21, verses 26 and 27. It says this, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. The law is not, hey, strike his eye and he can strike yours. It's strike him and he goes free. The principle is that the punishment should fit the crime. All of the civil laws that are contained here continue to reflect this overarching truth that in all things we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That we should do to others what we would have them do to us. God cares about right worship as we talked about. God cares about right relationships and right dealings among his people. Now we're kind of flying through here. We're getting to Exodus twenty-two sixteen. This next section has this heading, Laws About Social Justice. Now, I don't know what comes into your mind when you see this phrase, and there could be as many different ideas as there are people in this room. But when you see this heading first, you need to be aware that these headings aren't a part of Scripture. One, they're put there by an editor to help us read, to help us understand what's there. Second, you need to know that these headings, they're meant to give us an idea of what these sections contain. And in this section speaks, it speaks of God's desire for justice and compassion in a society. So God's desire for justice in the society, social justice. Now, given our times, this phrase, social justice, it can be a distracting one, but I want to be clear. I am not up here trying to make any political arguments. I'm up here to speak God's word to you. I want to be clear where God's word is clear and on how we should live. So this whole section going all the way to Exodus 23, 19, it has to do with justice and compassion. And there are two orientations to this justice. It's got a vertical orientation and a horizontal orientation. So vertical justice, it has to do with our relationship with God. How can we just before God? This passage highlights again and again and again what we owe to God. So we owe him our obedience. We owe him our reverence. We owe him our first fruits. We owe him our worship. God explains what it looks like to live rightly before him. Look at this section from 23, chapter 23, verses 10 through 19, dealing with right worship. In verse 12, we see, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Verse 14, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. God builds in, for the community of God's people, God builds in these rhythms where they can live rightly before him. These rhythms to life where they remember him, where they look to him where they live in the right way before him. 
Now, as people, we have this constant penchant for distraction, to be caught up in other things that are going on. But God says, hey, every week you have this rhythm to help you to look to me and remember me. Three times a year, take this extended time to look to me and worship me. God's concern for justice is vertical. He wants his people, as they live in their community, to live rightly before him. But God's concern for justice is also horizontal. This is the second orientation of justice. It's horizontal. God wants his people to live rightly in our relationships with one another. The categories of people that God deals with here, from 2216 through 2319, they're women, sojourners, travelers, strangers, widows and orphans, the poor, enemies. Now, speaking broadly, there's this common thread among all of these groups of people. Now, in one sense, especially in the ancient Near East, all of these groups are weak and vulnerable. For example, look at uh, Exodus 22, verse 21 through 27. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God shows care and compassion toward those who are the most weak and the most vulnerable. God wants protection for his people. He wants justice among his people. So he gives them laws to protect and order their society, which particularly protect the weak and the vulnerable in their midst. This is social justice. And it's something important for us today. Much of the social justice conversation in our culture revolves around the idea of of tolerance and acceptance. But in light of God's plan for justice, this is pathetic. Tolerance is far too weak a category. God doesn't say tolerate your enemies. What does God say? God says love your enemies. God doesn't say tolerate the poor, put up with them, the widow, the orphan. No, he says care for them, meet their needs, protect them. God is telling us to look around, to look out for those who are having a harder time in life. That's a broad category, a harder time in life. I heard one pastor say, this doesn't make you a liberal. It makes you a Christian. For those of us who live in suburban D.C., who live in this area with our disposable incomes and our busy lives of activities and work and vacation, many of us have unprecedented privilege. And it can be easy to think that, like, this is pretty normal. Like, this is just how it is. This is what everyone experiences in our area, in our neighborhoods, or in our church. But brothers and sisters, this isn't the case. We are called by God to look around us, to look out for those who, for whatever reason, are thinking, this world doesn't work well for people like me. God cares about the weak. He cares about those who are marginalized and oppressed. And he calls us to care for them, too. Now, there's so much more that could be said here. Like, I could do a whole sermon right now just on this but i have to get to my second point at some point and if but if you do want to discuss this further i'd be happy to talk to you now so now to my second point and this point will be 
briefer than the first. Number two, this broad heading, presence and promise for God's people. So we've looked at provision and protection for God's people, now presence and promise for God's people. So after God has unpacked these laws for his people, he comforts them with his promises and his presence. He speaks more grace to them. Now first we see the promise of his presence in chapter 23, verse 20 through 33. Look at 20 through 26 with me. Chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. We see here that God promises to be with his people. So God's delivered his people. God's told his people how to live. And now God promises that, hey, I'm going to go before you. I will be with you. And interestingly, he promises to send an angel before them. Well, who is this angel? This section actually makes it pretty clear. The angel is the Lord himself. In verse 21, it says, My name is in him. Verse 22, it says, Obey his voice and do all that I say. God himself will be with his people and go before them. Then the rest of this section, verses 27 through 33, it describes the terror that goes before the people as God leads them to the promised land. Now this terror is also the Lord. It is God who speaks, and it is God who draws out his enemies. One commentator says this, he says, The Lord who calls his people to costly and demanding obedience himself accompanies them in appropriate ways and goes before them to secure their victories and promised possessions. So the God who gives the law and calls us to obedience, he goes with us. Then we come to chapter 24, where we see God's promise of grace to his people once again. I'm going to read, read with me, beginning in 24, verse 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said this. It's going to be familiar to you. All the, wor- all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, which is what he has just written, which is what we've been going over from Exodus 19 through 23. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, again, all that the Lord has spoken, 
we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now there's a lot going on here. But the thing I want to highlight is verse 8. Right after the people have declared all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient, the people are covered in blood. And it's called the blood of the covenant. Now this is an odd occurrence and one that doesn't have precedent up to this point in Scripture. But on this side of Jesus Christ, it takes on great significance. Because you see, right after the people declare their commitment to obey, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, they're covered in the blood of of sacrifice. It's as if God has covered them in mercy. God knows that they are unable to fulfill their end of the covenant. They're going to fall short. They cannot fulfill what the law demands. And while they should pursue obedience, they're going to fall short. So God makes provision for them. And they're covered with the blood of sacrifice. Now one thing that doesn't happen here is it doesn't say, so the people didn't care about obeying anymore. It doesn't say that. Still called to obey, still called to follow all that he says. But they are now covered in the blood. We, like the people of Israel, we need to be covered by the blood of sacrifice as well. We need to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. This is the only way we can truly be consecrated to God. Look what happens next. Read verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seven of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, highlighting his holiness, his perfection. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the rhythm of worship for God's people. He calls them together to remember his name. I'm the one who causes my name to be remembered. And the people hear his word and they respond to his gracious call in obedience. There's a call, there's our response. And then they share in a meal. Call, response, meal. This is the rhythm of worship. This is what takes place in Eden. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God calls Adam to the garden to work it and to keep it. And he commands obedience of him. He says, you shall not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But he also calls him to fellowship with him as he can eat from every other tree in the garden. God tells Adam, remember that I am God, obey me, and enjoy me. Adam was called to fast from one tree in order to feast from every other tree. Same thing, call, response, meal. But then the serpent comes. The serpent comes to distort this worship. He comes and he makes his call. Obey me. Reject God. Obey me. Eat, call, response, meal. True worship on earth was destroyed by sin and idolatry. But how can we come? How can we know God? How can we live in fellowship and union and communion with Him? In this narrative from Exodus 19 through 24, God is laying out a picture for the only way that anyone can come to Him. And it follows this same rhythm, call, response, meal. We saw the call in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You've seen the salvation I have worked for you. Now obey me that you might be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. 
We've seen God's detailed call to his people to obey him in all of their lives, in every area. This is God's word to them. And they're called to respond to that. We saw their response in 19 verse 8 and 24 verse 7. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But before God shares a meal with his people, he cleanses them. And he cleanses them through the blood of sacrifice. Grace comes to restore right worship. And now God shares a meal with his people. And this is even more true for us today. What we could not do on our own, as we thought about and talked about earlier, what we could not do on our own, make ourselves right before God, save ourselves, God has done for us through Jesus Christ. As Hebrews 10 says, we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. John Newton once wrote, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, he said, Christ has hushed the, loud, the law's loud thunder. He's hushed it. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. As we look back to Exodus, we remember God's grace to his people. As we gather together today, we again remember God's grace to his people. And what we're going to be able to do together just shortly is share in this covenant meal together. And all of this is in anticipation of a future day. When we will fully enjoy a meal with God, unhindered by sin. One author has said, The worship that was revealed in Eden, and then typified at Sinai, is finally perfected and realized in heaven. Then, in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. So as we look to God's grace, to God's people, through God's law, let us look to his word with delight. Let us remember the two directions of his call to us. It always begins with grace, but then we respond. We respond in obedience. And as we respond, God makes provision for us through the Spirit, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads and pray with me. Oh, Father, thank you for making a way for us to come to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you that here all our guilt is wiped away, and here we have forgiveness and life. Lord, for those in our midst who have not repented of their sins and have not turned to you in faith, would you do a work in their heart? May they confess their sins to you. May they repent of their sins and may they turn to you and place their hope in you for their salvation. Thank you that you have opened the door to full assurance of faith through the blood of Jesus. It's in this we hope. In Jesus' name, amen. momentarily, the, uh, the host team is going to come and pass out the bread and the cup. And as they pass it out, would you hold on to it? And that way we can partake together. And as you wait, meditate on the words of the song that we're going to sing together. We're going to sing what we sang earlier. There is a fountain filled with blood. Meditate on these words and be reminded of the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. And while we celebrate this reality this morning, this bread and cup, they're not for everyone. If you have not repented of your sins and have not been a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, this meal is not for you. This meal expresses our common trust in Christ. To eat it without genuine faith and repentance, it it brings dishonor to God. And if this is you, we're glad that you're here with us. We don't want you to feel uncomfortable in any way. 
we do want you to know, to observe and to know that God invites you today to enter into salvation. God invites you to enter into the joy and freedom that come through redemption in Jesus Christ when you trust in him as your Savior. And if this is you, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Please come up. Now, before the elements are passed out, let me pray for us. We praise you, Father, for we have been delivered from the bondage of sin, which we could never free ourselves from. But because you are rich in mercy and infinite in your goodness, you have given us redemption in Jesus. And so we now stand in your only and well-beloved Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Host team, you can pass out the bread and cup.